Hello, hello, listeners. It's Kyla. I'm here to tell you about Code Whack, a podcast that shines a light on the callous American healthcare system and what can be done about it. It reveals the healthcare hassles that threaten peace of mind, financial security, and at times, patients' very lives. Hosted by Brenda Gazar, you'll hear interviews with the sharpest minds in healthcare advocacy. Listen to Code Whack wherever you get your podcasts or by going to codewack.libsyn.com. There's more similarities between my living situation and the living situation in a prison institution. Introducing Invisible Institutions, a new podcast investigating the unreported and invisibilized horrors of the institutional system. It was like a prison, and I know that's um, hyperbolic, but it was. Coming February 2022. Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Podcasts. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. And today we are joined by friend of the pod, Megan Linton, to discuss the book Donut Economics. So how you doing, Megan? Great. Glad to be here the day after National Donut Day. Yeah, yeah, I wish I I should get your number because I texted that to Kristen. I was like, it's National Donut Day. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, damn, we didn't record on it. But, you know, basically did. Yeah, you know. <laughs> what are days really? Social constructs. Yeah. I read a book about donuts on Donut Day, so I think that's fine. Yeah, you did it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've eaten a donut the last two days, so check that box. <laughs> And just for listeners who maybe don't know Megan, she is the host of Invisible Institutions, one of our favorite sister shows on the Harbinger Media Network. And we recommend everyone check that out. We, you're, you probably heard an ad for it at the start of this show because I've been just rolling those. <laughs> oh my God, that's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, you've, uh, I think you've been on the, at the like, beginning of what the last like five or six episodes. <laughs> it's nice. We run ads like we're a professional podcast or something. <laughs> <laughs> But only the good ones. Yeah, it's always just yours and then that other healthcare podcast. <laughs> the best kinds of ads, the ones you don't get paid for. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to be doing a lot more of those uh, in, the, in the coming months. But for now, we're happy to feature you. <laughs> and thank you for talking to us about this book. You've read it twice. I have not quite finished it. So you have read it one and a half more times than I have. <laughs> I feel like um, rereading it was fun because I really got to like put back on my like bitchy public policy um, glasses. <laughs> so I had fun rereading it. Kristen, what did you what did you think? Do you want to tell the listener what this book is about? It's not actually about donuts, although kind of, I guess. <laughs> donuts probably belong in the economy somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I would say broadly that this book is trying to package a bunch of movements that are happening within economics together into one concept. And the concept is all centered around the donut model, which is why the book is called Donut Economics. And the donut model, basically, it describes a band where we're living within our ecological limits and also where we can sort of achieve justice. So meeting the like needs and well-being of everybody on the planet. 
Can I make an attempt to describe the donut? Or are you going to do that? (laughs) You go ahead. Okay. So the Timbit part of the donut, the hole, the inside part, is the social foundation that you don't want to fall underneath. So if you're not taking care of your citizens, then you have like water scarcity, food scarcity, people don't have health care, people aren't getting educated. There's a whole bunch of them in here. I'm sure we'll talk about them. So that's the inside of the donut. That's the donut hole. You don't want to go in there. (laughs) Which is really unfortunate because I feel like Timbits are the only redeeming factor of Tim Hortons. (laughs) My controversial opinion. (laughs) Timbits are, I always wish that they were better. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. (laughs) (laughs) The outside of the donut is like the, the environment, making sure that we don't exceed what the planet can take so that outside of the donut you have ocean acidification, chemical pollution, climate change, lots of stuff like that. Very upsetting. And unfortunately, we are going above the donut and inside the donut and the safe space for humanity, which is the actual donut, the ring that all of those things go outside of or inside of. It's like, where we want to be, but we're not. We're not there. There's just sprinkles everywhere. (laughs) There's sprinkles everywhere. (laughs) Did I I do it justice? Would anyone like to uh, correct anything I said or add to it? (laughs) No, but I feel feel like you did a fantastic job. And also it kind of like the like weird squiggly bits where we're inside and outside now are kind of like, I think what I see as like one of the challenges of the model of like, Okay, so we're supposed to be within this like special, precious in-between of the... I guess we could call the insides the filling so that we're looking at it (laughs) as a jelly donut. (laughs) But it's like we are so, so far outside the like special zone. I don't really like... I think it's hard to understand how we're going to... How this thing is supposed to work if we've cataclysmically failed already. (laughs) Yeah. We have more of a toaster strudel economy. (laughs) (laughs) I really liked a lot of the ideas that she was pulling together in this book, though. I thought she did a really good job of taking a lot of concepts that I had already been like vaguely familiar with and putting them together and then creating one model that kind of encapsulates where governments specifically should be, like what their goalposts should be, which it it shouldn't be like GDP, which is, of course, inevitably on an upward trajectory. That's how it works. And and the the planet has finite resources. So, you know, eventually we're just going to burn ourselves out if we follow that metric, which is where everyone else, everyone is right now. Yeah. I am curious, though, because like a big part of what she's pitching as the value of the book is like this picture, you know, this picture that's supposed to bring everything together. And I know it's like kind of supposed to be like, this would be a great thing that we would teach in economics classrooms. And that's not really like, at least where my head's at. But like, did you guys find it valuable? Was it like, I don't know, did it add to your understanding at all? I think like, so it came out in 2017, which is a long time ago in the phase of where we're at. <laughs> it's like the longest five years in human history. Um, <laughs> and and like when it, the first time I read it, I feel like the first chapter, the introduction is like super enchanting for economic students and like leftists because it's like talking about how 
you know, you sit through these like bullshit economics classes where they say full, just pretend we're in full employment or like making up a lot of models that are super limited in their understanding and like how they're functioning and, and how applicable they are. And then, and so it's like, yeah, I'm in, I'm ready. I'm glad there's like, like the first time I read it, I think I was like really excited because I was like, yeah, I leave economics classes being like, that is like so much more, like this is so exciting and so much better than being like isolated and alienated from the entire field and being like, and, and like, I think she talks about like having to like turn your brain off in economics in order to like get through it. And that was my experience in policy, like doing my, my master's it was like in order for macroeconomics to work, like you just have to turn your brain off and say that immigration the thing is like, you have to say immigration is bad because it brings it up number of people. And it's like, I don't want, what? (laughs) (laughs) I I can't fail this class, but also what? Yes. (laughs) And so this book's like nice because it's like, great, this is something for the people feeling isolated. And then I think it's actually just kind of disappointing where it's like, I think what you were getting at Kristen of like, maybe it would be good for like, first year econ students, but now it's five years later, we're in the middle of like our planet exploding. How are we going to get down? Like we already know that we've failed this. And I think that's like one of the challenges of it. Yeah. I mean, I was like originally very on board with this book because it mirrors almost exactly like my own intellectual journey. I When I went into undergrad, I was an econ major to start with because I thought that like distributional issues mattered, you know, I wanted to know how we distribute resources in society. But I very quickly learned that like econ actually has pretty much nothing to do with that and certainly doesn't go into like ethical debates about it. And so that is why I went into political science, (laughs) eventually circled around a little bit and became a political economist. But, uh, you know, I agree with you. I think. Ultimately, the the conclusions were a little disappointing. I do think it's a useful tool because, I mean, maybe we'll talk about the like seven ways of thinking. It brings together a lot of like useful information that's happening in these sort of like segregated spheres, but I don't really leave it having a program for action in the way that I was hoping for. Yeah, I feel like mine is also kind of similar to like Dr. Brawworth is like infinitely smarter than me, but like I started in economics and international development studies, which is like embarrassing. But um, <laughs> and, and I think like that's kind of like is a big part of the book is like her talking about her mission or her aid work in Zanzibar, <laughs> and, and then like it ends and like now donut economics is like happening in Amsterdam and wherever and like Europe. And I think that's kind of like a a signifier of it is like, I'm confused how this is going to radically change like the power structures and like the, yeah. Anyway, we can, we can get into the seven. (laughs) Yeah. It was weird too. Like um, just touching on the, the link to development economics, like there's a chapter on whether green growth is possible, which I found overall a very disappointing chapter. (laughs) Um, We can talk about why more. But one of the things is like she uses the takeoff model um, by like this guy named Rostow from the 50s that is like 
I don't know, at least as far as I understand it and as far as I have taught it in a like development course, pretty outdated and like, if not outright racist, definitely Eurocentric, <laughs> you know? So it was just weird to see that used as the foundation for the chapter because one would think somebody who has worked at Oxfam would not just take modernization theory, like this, like be more like white people and you will succeed model of the economy, <laughs> especially when the rest of the book is like arguing against it. Can you, for for listeners who haven't read the book, can you clarify what that model is um, from the 50s that she was talking about? Yeah, I mean, it's just a model of like economic takeoff. It basically says like you go through five steps to get from being a traditionalist society to being a modern society um, and like growth happens because of that. So it's within this line of thinking that happened in like the just after World War II where like decolonization was starting to happen and like the field of development economics was born and the first theories that came out had problems. (laughs) They weren't awesome. (laughs) And that was one of them. So. And how does she tie that to green growth? Um, She's got like a whole other model of like, you know, a takeoff that you could have, how you would position it uh, if you were thinking for as like a 21st century economist. I didn't really like it. So I don't want to talk about too much. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But I feel like that's kind of like one of the pieces where it is kind of like prescriptive. And I think in the same way that like modernization theory was very Eurocentric and focused on like capitalist forms of development is like, who is making this circle? Who is setting the goalposts? Because like, if it's still the same people setting the goalposts or like setting the inside of the donut and the outside of the donut, is that really going to allow for this? And then it's, it is kind of like prescriptive and like assuming that this is the way we can, we can do it. And if everywhere became like this, it would work and we would be fine. I feel like in, in her defense, because I read this book and I loved it, but it was my first time reading it and I'm not an economic student. So I might be coming at it from a different viewpoint from you guys, but I feel like This is a huge improvement on, and her main argument is just that nations are measuring their success uh, as countries by measuring GDP, and that's killing us. And so if we could change our goalposts to be this donut, I I mean, even if it's not perfect, although I I actually, I don't really, because I know she talked to a lot of people, um, scientists and humanitarian workers to come up with this model. So I don't know who, like, if it's like a Eurocentric thing, I got the impression that it might not be quite so Eurocentric, certainly not its GDP. But changing the goalposts to measure based on whether we are killing the planet and serving all of our society feels like a good first step. Yeah. And I mean, I won't say that, like, I didn't hate this book by any means. I actually came out of it thinking, you know, if I taught another development course, I'd probably assign this book because it goes through a lot of like really key concepts that we covered in the class. And I do think that the contribution of saying, um, look, political economy, when it was linked to philosophy, had like, not a mission, but like a goal and objective in mind that was linked to society. And like, by pretending to be like physics, they lost that and it's caused a lot of problems. Like, that is a valuable thesis. And to try to replace it with something that does have a goal is a really good objective. I'm just not sure how far the donut gets you beyond that, right? Beyond saying the planet matters and social justice matters, which is is something we've known for a little while. What else would you like to see from it? 
I don't know. Like, I mean, the model she's she's claiming to replace is like it's a model of how like flows in the economy work. And some of the like some of the stuff in individual chapters, I think, do a good job of addressing that. But I don't know, I guess in just trying to simplify it into this donut, I feel like we've really like lost like what what from public policy could you could you derive from a donut? You know, like if you're a decision maker trying to decide what to do. Yeah. And I feel like like it is a nice idea. Like it it's genuinely nice. I think it's just like like put stamping a cookie cutter over like a really messy difficult to lump together thing. So I feel like that's like respectable to try and do that. And I think it does offer kind of like the solutions that I think lots of government and particularly people within the like sustainable development sector and sustainable growth and environment and climate change Canada's like big piece on like building a future. But I think like one of the challenges (laughs) Building a future by planting <laughs> 1,000 trees. Which they still haven't done. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> They've been promising that since 2015. Anyway. But yeah, I think it's like, and I think I also would maybe like lean towards giving this th- to policy students. But I think like I'm a nerd. And so I was like looking at what has been published in the field kind of about this. And it is very much like building sustainable governance and like changing our governance strategies. But I think like that's kind of the danger of the model is like breaking it down to something similar to like having a carbon neutral society where it's like carbon neutrality is being like pumped off to like other countries and and in place of like planting trees and whatever. And it's not actually changing the things. It's like causing a lot more precarity, which you both are smarter on than me. But I feel like that's kind of like similar of the like net neutral thing of like, if you spend enough money giving it to people who will be, who will do good things, then we can just step back and not actually do anything. Like we can just say, we did it. We got to neutral. And I think that's kind of like one of the challenges of, of this is like, yeah. Yeah. So would you guys say that the main challenge then is how do we meet this social foundation of everyone having energy, water, food, healthcare, education, peace and justice, housing, etc., without exceeding the ecological ceiling? Is that is that where the issue is coming in for you guys? So like if we try to get everyone to be on equal footing, then are are you guys worried then that we would have to overshoot the ecological ceiling? I don't necessarily have a problem with that goal. That's not really my critique. Um, I just think that, I mean, that is a goal that lots of people have talked about before. And the challenge is like politically in public policy, designing systems so that we can get there. And I do think that like, there's a lot in this book that does help with that. But I'm just not sure that the like, especially on the like the crucial question of is degrowth necessary? I really think she punted the ball on that whole chapter. I don't know. like, And I know she recognized it and said, like, keep reading. But I did, and I was not satisfied. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, I would say that my challenge with it is that, I think a few, but, like, number one is, like, this is recording, like, two weeks after the storm in Ottawa. 
And like that storm was like, there's going to be so many more. And it was after the tornado in Ottawa and, and all of those things that are happening alongside a global pandemic caused by human interactions with nature, which is supposed to be increased through climate change and like all of these things that we're seeing super expedited. How are we supposed to scale back from that? And also how, yeah, I think there was not a lot about changing the power structures that be and like giving the working class power instead of like just keeping keeping going, but labeling it sustainable or like labeling it with a pursuit of sustainability. Yeah, for sure. And there were definitely some nods to equalizing the power relationship. Like she does talk about changing like the shareholder value model and trying to get sort of more collective bargaining rights and things like that. But it is very much within this like narrow band of what is possible, you know, arguably leaving out some more transformative solutions that might be more important. She does talk about a wealth tax, but it's like a 1% wealth tax, you know. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be enough. Not the 99% we need. (laughs) I mean, inside the donut, she does have political voice and social equity as a foundation for, like, as part of the social foundation. So, I mean, in theory, if you were just to take this image that she's created and not take any of the arguments from the book... You could, I mean, I feel like the donut picture covers it. Like, I have no problems with this image. I, I'm not seeing an issue here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think if you're not expecting this donut model to really solve new questions, if you're seeing it as like, there's a lot of stuff that's cool that's happening at the frontier of economics to make, to actually envision a solution we need for the 21st century, this book summarizes it. She does a great job of that. Um, You know, there's a lot of really good information in there on the circular economy, on like microfinance, as skeptical as I am of that, uh, on like the capabilities approach to um, to like uh, dealing with rights and poverty. Like there's a lot of different information in there, like systemic thinking. That's another big change in economics that um, will hopefully make them more grounded in reality. So like that is really a really good aspect of the book. But like I didn't come away from it with any new sense of what we should do you know? Yeah. And it is kind of like a bunch of baseline, nice ideas like microfinance that like, I think probably we get stuck on because it's like, those things have just like proven so time and time again, that they are failing and that they're causing like a lot of the same harms that like the first few waves of um, development financing did. And so I think it's hard to get on board when it's like a bunch of 2000s to 2010s like models of like improvement that now we know don't work. And now we know are part of like sustaining global powers that be it is kind of, it's a greatest hits of all the really popular books from the 2010s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like we got, we got like Nussbaum, we got Paketti, we got like Kahneman and Tversky. Yeah. Behavioral economics. <laughs> yeah. Right in there. That was huge. So is there anything from this book that you guys would like to see taken to the next level? Like, is there something that you could use this donut model for and how would you like to see it? take like how would you like to see it taken to the next level for sure i mean i think there's a lot to to like in how she 
how she discusses these different transitions, especially in the beginning of the book. I feel like as the book went on, I was a little bit less impressed, but she did a really good job of talking about like how the market's embedded and how traditional economic thinking does a really shitty job of dealing with that. But there are a lot of movements in modern economics that are starting to bring in those other kinds of like throughputs and to talk about feedback loops and things like that. You know, the human nature thing, I thought the whole chapter on that was really good to to argue that like economics has always assumed this superhuman, rational man, um, but really that discounts a lot of elements of how we live and humans don't really seem to act that way and actually also can learn. So I thought that that was really useful. Systems thinking, you know, we live in complex systems and just treating everything that you isn't easy to model as an externality that's separate is pretty wrong. <laughs> I thought that was a great point. So there's there's a lot to like about it. Um, it's just like those are contributions other people have made, right? So like if the value is just to summarize what those things are, then that's great. But I feel like there could have been like a step further. I don't know. <laughs> I'm expecting too much from one book. Yeah. And I feel like, so like within her social foundation of like gender equality, social equality, peace and justice, income and work, education, health, food, water, energy, networks, housing. I think like a lot of that, number one, like depends on like your value system where I don't think I would put, I don't think I would put like work and equity separate or like how are different people putting the social foundation into place, um, which, which I think is challenging to like build shared foundations when we do come from such divergent systems. And like, I think also that like justice is going to be a huge piece of building a social foundation. And so, I mean, I think like there should overall be like maybe a more significant centering, but I don't know. Also, maybe not because maybe it just needs like a bunch more pieces or spirals happening. Yeah. And I mean, maybe 10 years from now, it'll turn out that like the donut was really useful and it's at the center of like the way the field has transformed itself. I just, I kind of find that hard to imagine because it's not like GDP gives you measurable indicators, right? And she's not replacing GDP with something like GDP. And like you could talk about like the human development index, it's not perfect, um, but it and sort of other measures that attempt to include other non-economic indicators are a step forward. But like that's not really what she's replacing it with. She's replacing it with this like sort of vague statement of values. I suppose it's hard to replace GDP, which is so easily thrown around by politicians. It's very easy just to point at one number as opposed to this foundation that she has is like for the environment and for social equity, where each of those items would need a measurement. You wouldn't be able to just have one item. And I think it's also like, how are we going to get everyone on board to be like, we want to be in the sweet spot? That is our political demands is making the sweet spot I don't think it's like, like, I don't think that's a captivating movement. And I, and I think that's also why this has so much been limited to being like, not even necessarily that political, like, like it, it would be hard for politicians to take this up. I was saying earlier to, 
to my friend when I was kind of trying to explain this book that I feel like this book is like the Elizabeth Warren of like economic kind of theories. (laughs) It's great. These are like nice, but there's like a hundred different components. And what we need is like a centralized movement towards justice, um, like uprooting our current value system that is needing to point to GDP because that's a bigger switch than just getting people on board because there's lots of people. I think it makes the assumption that there's lots of people that want this to happen. Like everyone's on board for these things. And that's not, that's not the case. Yeah. I mean, I think about like Mariana Mazzucato uh, wrote a book around the same time called Mission Economy. And they're sort of paired side by side a lot of the times. And Mariana Mazzucato's book does really well on what I think this book doesn't do so well, which is to give one key, very actionable takeaway. And her argument is basically like, the state's great at innovation, we should do more. You know, if I'm like a decision maker or somebody that needs to be brought on side, I have a very clear sense of what I do after I read that book. Here, I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe if I'm an economics professor, I'm, I'm now thinking about what I could include in my curriculum. But as like a regular person reading this book, like, A, I was already on board with social and environmental justice, but I'm just like kind of left with, I don't know, what do we do? <laughs> I like the image of the donut in a way that um, makes me think of Alberta politics specifically, because there you have this argument, like this tug of war, this back and forth of, well, we can either save the environment or we can have jobs. And what I liked about the way the donut tied all of this together was being like, no, we need to focus on both things as opposed to the current narrative, which is like, well, you have to have one or the other. We have to choose. And it's like, well, no, we actually like we can work towards having both. We just can't measure GDP anymore. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we can still measure GDP. We just can't like make that the center of our GDP growth can't be the center of our policies. (laughs) But we should probably measure gross national uh, income instead. (laughs) Okay. If the donut model was a political party, which party would it be? Surely the Communist Party. (laughs) Right? I was going to say the Alberta NDP. (laughs) Oh, okay. My bad. (laughs) Too wishy-washy for the communists. I got you. (laughs) Yeah, I think it makes like one reference to Marx and it's like, Marx had a good idea once. (laughs) Um, I was going to say... The Ontario NDP, which I think is because I'm cynical and like this, I I felt cynical reading this book again, maybe because it was like election time where it's like, this is fine. (laughs) It's it's not going to win us though, because it's too, it doesn't have that clear mission. And I think it leaves a lot of loose threads instead of like, I think you can have lots of components because like we live in super complex worlds and require a lot of different like ideas. But I think we need the like, that's why it's not the communist party. (laughs) We need the like tie together piece. Like we need the rallying point. We need the like, yeah, where's the workers of the world unite in this book? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Fair enough. Maybe I was, you know, probably while I was reading it, I was just so excited by the image of the donut that I was like, I was probably reading between the lines more than I was reading the actual words. (laughs) 
No, and I mean, I'm really glad that you enjoyed the image of the donut because, I mean, maybe then, maybe Megan and I are just being too, like, cynical in our, you know, academic minds. Like, you need to make a novel contribution. And what's your novel contribution? (laughs) This would never get published in a journal. (laughs) (laughs) As someone who didn't get a master's degree in economics, I think it's great. <laughs> I I have I hadn't seen it before. Uh, and it just tied together all of these things that I already believe in. And I was like, oh, great, there's an image for it. I love it. But I, I do agree. It is interesting that she had quite a bit at the beginning about the issue with the left and their inability to come up with a single rallying point and why people have a hard time <laughs> Uh, with the left and coming on board with ideas because it takes so long to describe what we need to do. Because if you just distill every problem down into like a a four-word catchphrase, that really leaves a lot out. So it's interesting that she had quite a bit of that in the book, but then the solution she offered was this image of a donut, which, yes, is fairly simple, but also is very complex. Yeah, I mean, this chart, like, I mean, yes, it's a donut and I recognize the shape. But there's a lot going on. (laughs) There's a donut, but it's also kind of like three wheels, you know, concentrically. Like, I don't know. There's an arrow running through it. (laughs) Have either of you read Stephanie Kelton's book on modern or like read much of modern monetary theory? I have been in discussions on modern monetary theory. (laughs) (laughs) Very popular amongst centrists uh, before the pandemic. Well, and also early pandemic before inflation, you know. I have not read about it. Tell me about it. Okay. So Stephanie Kelton was like Bernie's economic policy advisor. So kind of like to like set the scene. And she's really big on like the endless expansion of state spending and like growth through um, specifically like centralized government spending, I think. That is what it is. (laughs) Um, I question myself, but that is the thing. Um, And I feel like it's kind of like a nice, it had a good populist message of like, we need to like really expand um, our services. We need to have like a care-based economy. We need to have all of these things in place. And I think like, this is kind of like the precursor to it. And I think that like, yeah, MMT, modern monetary theory was or like would be really centrist. But I think the donut is actually even more centrist than MMT. Like I think the World Economic Forum had donut theory, but like would never have Stephanie Kelton, I think. It probably depends in whose hands. Like I doubt that Kate Raworth herself would be a described centrist, um, which is probably like center left. But I can definitely see how you would pick up this book as a centrist and interpret it in your own way. I suppose that's something that I'm really learning in this conversation is that the donut leaves a lot to the imagination. Because when you guys are looking at it, you're seeing something very different than when I'm looking at it, which I guess as a foundation for policy is not great. (laughs) I mean, like insofar as it describes like, you know, people, people should get the things they need to live. But also we got to be careful because there are planetary boundaries. Like in as much as it just says that, yes, (laughs) true. (laughs) 
I, I mean, I also liked, um, I liked some of the discussions, especially like at the beginning of the book, uh, there was a long section on unpaid work in within the household. Uh, I think this was in the section on the embedded economy. It was like the the state needs to take more seriously, not just facilitating the market, but also, you know, acknowledging the important role played by non-paid work um, and the sort of anti-feminist nature of austerity programs that thrust more into the household sector. And like, maybe I needed to spend more time with the data of it. And maybe then I would be like, so she built it from like, 2008 to 2014 data, which like makes sense because that's where we were at. And I think it's just like we had maybe like a window for a bit to have this kind of like thing go ahead and like work. But now like we've built a million more pipelines. Like we have a a rising growth of like populism um, on the right and that's not being met on the left at all. Um, and so like, could this be a factor in like making it more like stronger messaging on the left and like what our needs and wants are? Yeah. I think that in order to do that though, it needs to have like a lot more tangibles and maybe also it's like, I would say that the book starts out really strong and then it dips towards the end. So maybe you haven't gotten to the part where it dips yet. Maybe. I, I got to page like 150. So I'm like 100 pages out from the end. And I was really hoping that she would have more concrete examples of what to do. But I guess I'm learning now from this conversation that the I'm just going to be disappointed. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the last three chapters that weren't the conclusion were all they all got progressively weaker. And I was like loving the book until midway through the like chapter that's supposed to be on inequality and redistribution. And I was just very underwhelmed by that. And I became even less whelmed in future chapters. I see. And that's the chapter that I stopped at. So maybe that's why I'm coming in with such a buzz for this book. And and you guys are like, Kyla, what are you talking about? Did we read the same book? Okay. It's also okay. I'm like looking at the appendix now and it has like all of these nine critical processes and every single one of them we have surpassed, which is like ocean acidification. Oh yeah. The planetary boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. Chemical pollution. One of the things is fresh water withdrawals. Excessive withdrawals of water, however, can impair or even dry up lakes, rivers, and aquifers, damaging ecosystems and altering the hydrological cycle and climate. But we've already passed that. (laughs) California has no water left. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, we're past at least four of the nine planetary boundaries and honestly, probably six. So yeah. Okay. I'm counting one, two, three, four five. I mean, six, seven. And and then it's like also maybe because we just went through this election and everyone or the like 10 people who voted, voted in favor of expansion of chemical pollution, increased land conversion to highway, whatever, 416 expansion and like expansion of air pollution and ozone layers. And that was like, the talking points, more highway, more. Yeah. 
I did not pay. I did not pay attention to the Ontario election. <laughs> I'm super sorry. <laughs> you have to take care of yourself, right? Like it's it's so hard. You, I, I'm the same. I, there's some things that I just pick and choose, and it, like for me, the the news story that I cannot handle right now is like Israel Palestine. Anytime that comes up in my feed, I'm like, I cannot deal right now. And I know that's shitty, but like <laughs> I care about so many things and I follow so many things. Like sometimes you just have to breathe, you know? I was like, I cannot do the depth situation. I just Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, obviously that too. <laughs> I also did not yeah, follow I that. Out of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't. I can't see it. And like I Honestly, following the Ontario election is just like me racking up hating all of the parties more. And it's kind of funny. Like, I feel like honestly how bad the things were was like chaotically outrageous. Yeah, I mean, I just don't understand how the public could take what we learned about long-term care homes during the pandemic and like how badly that issue was managed, knowing that like, it's that should be an issue the median voter cares about, like of all things, and still go with the status quo. Well, I think like one of the challenges is that is like the thing with this book is like it's the weird, strange detail components that like the left campaigned on of like ne- never talking about the deaths, never talking about the horrifying shit that went on inside and instead being like, we're going to do a XYZ expansion in order to house XYZ more seniors. And it's like, that's so intangible. That's so intangible and so impossible to see. And also so much of this, I think is like the thing is like, it's not recognizing the human beings who are like currently in like, huge despair because we've surpassed all of those planetary boundaries like 20 years ago. Yeah, it's it's so true on any number of issues. <laughs> no, I I mean I I agree. I think I think there're just too many words in the donut model. <laughs> and billionaires is like short and fast, you know. Yeah, tax the rich, I think, is 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 something that people have been really, like, biting into, which I like. <laughs> uh, what's her definition of, I've, I got to find it because it was long. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to remember this. Oh, I did as a side note, as I just flipped past this. Um, she presented neoliberal economics and, like, 21st century economics through, like, a playbill uh, and I thought that was very clever. Oh, yeah, I liked that a lot. I really liked that. I also liked um, in chap- in the uh, design to distribute chapter when she's talking about like all of the different economic models of the like of history. Um, I just wrote a note to myself that was like, Alfred Marshall is an idiot because she wrote Alfred Marshall claimed the opposite, that incomes across society would tend to converge as the economy expanded. And I'm like, that hasn't happened. (laughs) What a dummy. (laughs) (laughs) If we're just talking about things from the book that we liked. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there was lots in the book that I enjoyed. Like, she's she's very funny. There were several points where I laughed out loud, um, mostly at how idiotic dead economists have been. (laughs) That was mostly the butt of the jokes. (laughs) (laughs) 
I also liked her description of the Monopoly game where she was like, so the game is actually supposed to be played with two sets of rules, but then they took out the second set of rules that is all about socialism. <laughs> I would totally play Monopoly with prosperity rules, um, which for just for listeners, when somebody buys a property in Monopoly, everybody else would get money because there would be taxation. And uh, you win when the person with the least amount of money doubles their money. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it just sounds delightful. Yeah, I feel like the fun part of Monopoly right now would be like shaking down the banker. <laughs> and that's more of like the the energy that I feel like we need is like, I don't know, need to shake him down. <laughs> do you think you could do like a 21st century of Monopoly where instead of it being banks, it's like big tech and they gain data instead of money? Oh, that's grim. (laughs) (laughs) I'm fun at parties, I promise. (laughs) But yeah, that's a game you could make, definitely. We should, uh, we should, we should contact Hasbro. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Maybe that'll be the next thing that Elon funds. That will save the planet. Good, good for him. We need something to work for him. That guy needs a win, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I liked her suggestion of testing different models, selecting the ones that work and amplifying them. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like very obvious. Do we not already do that? I guess we don't because otherwise we'd have universal basic income already. Yeah, I mean, that's like a big talking point in, again, it's a 2010's like greatest hit. William Easterly wanted us to be humble and plan development. It's just, I don't know, she just was regurgitating all these things that were there already, like... Maybe that's a good thing, I guess. Maybe bringing together these diverse fields of economics, like environmental economists probably never talk to development uh, economists who probably never talk to feminist economists. So maybe this is like, maybe that's the main advantage of the book and packaging it in a way that if you're not an economist, you could understand. Although for that purpose, there's a few more citations than I think you would probably want. That's fair. I mean, for the first three quarters of the book, that's what I loved about it, um, is that I feel like as somebody who, again, did not get a master's in this, I get to see the best bits of all of these different books from the early 2000s that now I don't need to read. (laughs) And that she ties together in a way where she's like, well, this guy says this, and this guy says this. So why don't we put it together? And then you have that. I just realized, Kyla, that we're basically replicating the same discussion we had um, when we read Waste Free World, except in this instance, I am Robbie and you are me saying, actually, all this information, putting it together is useful for people. (laughs) I would like to say for the record that this book is much better than Waste Free World. (laughs) Yes, it is. I would actually (laughs) recommend everybody read Donut Economics. I don't think any like everybody needs to read Waste Free World, though I don't think it would hurt if you did. (laughs) Unless you're planning to be on the campaign staff of Michael Bloomberg, in which case you should probably read it. (laughs) It was like a deep cut. Maybe we should re-release that episode soon. (laughs) I think if you want to feel like a bit less lonely when thinking about economics, this is a nice place to turn. And I think it like provides like a bit of space to be critical of the economic models and like to hate them a bit, to like... I, I loved how much she hated on Mankiw, who's like the number one like economic textbook seller. But I think like 
I think I wouldn't go much further than that because I think like there's a lot more exciting and critical thinking. And then also like, I think what you were talking about earlier about how we should try different things and then, and go with that. I think like, that's one of the kind of like things that politicians pretend we do, but like we haven't used evidence-based decision-making in like so long. Like our policies are based around decisions that we want to do the thing that keeps the system as opposed to we want to do the thing that like is effective. Yeah. Like let's start there. We don't need the donut. We can just start implementing policies that work based on evidence. (laughs) But it's like now we do it evidence-based decision-making in the other direction of like, oh, we see that this is going to harm the most number of XYZ community that's fine. We're down with that as long as it maintains our status quo. We created a lot of value for shareholders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. I liked how often a universal basic income came up in this book. Just speaking on evidence-based policy, it's, I mean, it's one of those issues on which you have some of the most positive results, but it's also one of those things where gathering more evidence is definitely used as a delay tactic. Like, I think at this point, this might be controversial, but I think we have enough evidence for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, where do we get the money? Mm, the wealthy. <laughs> if, okay, first of all, I should have started with this, but if there was a donut with six donuts and they are, number one, sprinkle, chocolate, old-fashioned glazed, honey cruller, jam-filled, and apple fritter, which one would you choose? And which one would you give this book and why? (laughs) For me, can I take maple dip, even though it wasn't on the list? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Okay, great, because I want the chocolate donut because it tastes the best. (laughs) Megan? (laughs) Okay, I want the fritter, but I feel like this book is the... It is the sprinkle donut where it's That's what like, I was going to say. Oh, finally, we agree on something. <laughs> oh, boy. I have a different perspective. I'm ready to fight. <laughs> but tell us why it's a sprinkle donut first. <laughs> it's packaged nicely. She puts it together and then you like take a bite and you're like, oh, this is just the same 2010s. Remember what? Okay. Maybe actually... A, a highlightable part of this book was in the 2010s, which she does the greatest hits. That really was like the time in society donuts made a comeback. So like <laughs> <laughs> she goes with that. And that's why it's the 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 confetti donut. Yeah, I mean everybody likes a nostalgia track, so <laughs> but I personally think it's a honey dip, and my reasons are two. One, um, because it's a little too sweet. And two, because it's full of a lot of air, and I feel like honey glazed are really light donuts. Oh, okay. I was going to say sprinkle because there's a lot of color on top, but not a lot of flavor. Wow. I feel like we did good there. Nailed it. (laughs) I still would really urge everybody to read this book. I think the way that she ties together economic theory and the history of economics and where we need to go for economics, maybe she doesn't offer all of the solutions, but I found it really 
a, a really great way to tie together ideas that I hadn't put to words before because I haven't been through an economics training. So I think for a layman who wants to get a better idea of like how to make the world a better place, this is a really good starting point. Yeah. And I mean, I wasn't kidding when I said I would I would assign this in a development course because it goes through most of the concepts that I cover when I teach that course. So if you're not an economist, or maybe if you are, do read this book. Just don't expect it to be like the solution to your problems. If you're a political economist, maybe skip it. <laughs> <laughs> and instead read uh, Thomas Piketty's new book, A History of Equality, which is so good. It's all about how society has generally been getting more equal since the 17th century, but mostly the middle 40%. Have you heard of capital? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And also capital in the 21st century. (laughs) Read that one too. Although I will say in defense of donut economics, it is a tight 250 pages. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Um, And actually... (laughs) So Piketty's first book was like a 800-page monolith, but his new one's shorter. <laughs> that is the one that I have read, and I think I read it in econ- in an economics class because I was bored. Okay, <laughs> like, I did have a different book I wanted to recommend, but I'm I'm just taking a moment to find it because I don't really know how. While you're looking, Kyla, what's your favorite donut? <laughs> Chocolate. I'm basic. I don't know what to say. I like a chocolate donut and you can get them vegan and they're so good. But like a yeast raised, I should be clear, a yeast raised chocolate donut. Yum. What about you, Kristen? Is it just the, is it the maple, the maple dip? No, it's very close though. There's a place in Ottawa that makes a butterscotch pecan donut and it's a cake donut and it's so good. Cake donuts? Mm, No, it's got to be yeast raised. (laughs) Do you know what I'm learning, though, from this, Kristen, is that we can share a box of donuts and there will be no issues. Yeah. Do you like jelly filled? Because I'm not about that at all. (laughs) I love jelly filled. Oh, I just want to get a box of donuts with you. I found the book and it maybe is um, a good insight into (laughs) the type of book I read, which is How Will Capitalism End? Essays on a Failing System by Wolfgang Streak. Yeah, oh, I've heard of that one. It's nice. Okay, great. So we have some new books we can read. We also recommend Donut Economics, even if it's not perfect, although some of us liked it more than others. I guess I never finished it. So maybe if you read it to three quarters of the way through and then stop, it'll be a hit. And then, <laughs> thank you, Megan, for joining us today. We really appreciate having you to discuss this book. You have a tattoo of a donut, so we knew you were the person to call. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me. I was like really thrilled to be able to like go back into this book and do a little reread. Yeah. Do you have anything that you want to plug? Is it your podcast, Invisible Institutions, or anything else? Yeah. My podcast is Invisible Institutions. Um, I'm also working on the disability justice issue of Briar Patch, which will be coming out in September. Oh, cool. That's exciting. At the risk of unwinding us down, I just thought of another question. Can I ask it? Yes, please do. Okay. So since we've been talking about this book as like 2010's greatest hit, what is your favorite thing from the 2010s? And why is it Gangnam Style? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah, you got me. <laughs> 2010's great hit for me was like 
skinny jeans. Yeah. I don't know what the Zoomers are doing, bringing back. <laughs> First of all, wide leg jeans. And secondly, low cut. No. <laughs> low cut is the red flag. I mean, I like the wide leg, like fit whatever I can in there. You know, really fill it up. <laughs> My greatest hit of the 2010s was not understanding climate change or plastic pollution the way that I do now <laughs> and just live in my life like oh look at this cute like plastic backpack that I'll wear for two months yes please <laughs> oh yes wow the 2010s like the the world is burning but slowly vibe was kind of it was okay <laughs> you remember when we thought the Arab Spring was going to be a good thing I liked that like brief month that was nice ah Okay, well, on that note, everyone should listen to Invisible Institutions. It is on the Harbinger Media Network. If you want to see more of our sister shows, you can go to harbingermedianetwork.com. You can find Kristen and I on Twitter at Pullback Podcast, or you can leave us a voice message. <laughs> Has anyone done that yet, Kyla? <laughs> I actually haven't checked. We might have like hundreds, and I just like, keep asking. <laughs> Uh, but I would love to hear your voices. So, you know, do that for us. Otherwise, we'll catch you on the next episode. <laughs>